So the story of Jonah begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, this is in chapter 1, and calling him to rise and go to Nineveh and call out against them because the evil in Nineveh has come up to the Lord. And the Assyrians uh, were the people group living in Nineveh. That's the association here is the Assyrian Empire. And we know from biblical record as well as archaeology and other historical accounts that these people were brutal. The Assyrians were brutal. And whatever evil was going on in their midst, God wanted it to stop. Often the scriptures record for us that God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. That when people cry out to God those prayers, the text says, come before him. And he responds. But we're also told that the blood of innocent people cries out to God in the scriptures. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And so whether people were praying because of injustice being done by the Ninevites or because God had simply had enough innocent blood being spilled, we don't know. But God chose Jonah to rise up and go and speak against these people who were committing evil, these people who had already um, done violence to, to Jonah and his people. And so Jonah does get up and he immediately turns tail in the opposite direction. You want to throw up that map, Caleb? You may remember this from a couple weeks ago if you were here. Instead of going east, he goes west. Instead of going up, he goes down. And, and, and if that's not enough, uh, Nineveh's over there. That's where he's supposed to go. He, goes, he, he starts in Gath Heifer right there in the middle, uh, goes down to Joppa, and then he takes a boat as far as the known world is on any map he would have had. There's a little town called Tarshish where exotic things come from and such. And, uh, and that's about as far as you could get. It's in the southern tip of Spain. He's trying to go in the opposite direction. And there on the high seas, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, God sends a tremendous storm upon that boat. It was apparently so terrifying that the sailors, tough professionals who had sailed through countless storms, started throwing their goods overboard and fearing for their lives. Jonah finally tells them that he's running from God and he is most definitely the reason that God is bringing a storm to come and bear upon their boat. And he tells them to just go ahead and throw me overboard. That's the only thing that's going to save you guys is tossing me overboard. But they're terrified to do this. These aren't like wicked men. They don't want to throw somebody overboard. So they just start rowing harder for land but realize nothing's working. This storm is uncanny. And they can't make anything and can't get any closer to the shore. And so finally, when all hope is gone, Jonah's telling them, just throw me overboard. They pray to God, asking him, God, please do not hold the blood of Jonah against us. And they toss him overboard. And chapter 1 ends with those men worshiping God and Jonah left for dead out of the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. As chapter 2 opens, the God who is Lord over the wind and the waves and the boats and the sailors is also Lord over the beasts of the ocean. As Jonah is drowning down in the depths of the sea with his feet tangled in the seaweed and running out of whatever oxygen is left in his blood, God appoints a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And it's hard to imagine a more hopeless scenario. But, but after three days, Jonah still hasn't died. And somewhere in, the, in that time, he realizes this is some kind of miracle. That God has somehow saved him from drowning in the entirety of chapter 2 is just a prayer, Jonah prays, of thanksgiving to God from the belly of a fish. So Jonah cries out, thanking God for saving him, knowing that even as a runaway, drowning and left for dead at the bottom of the ocean, 
He is not too far from God. In the very last verse of chapter 2, we read that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited, it literally threw up Jonah out upon the dry land. And don't miss the fact that when God speaks to the fish, it obeys him. In fact, the only thing in this entire story of Jonah which doesn't obey God when God speaks is Jonah. The only thing in the entire story that doesn't respond to God out of obedience is Jonah. Lest you think Jonah's the hero of this story. And when we pick up the text tonight, Jonah has been saved at the beginning of chapter 3. He's been saved miraculously by God, and the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah. So I want you to look at this slide. It's the one with two verses there, Caleb. Jonah 1, 2, and Jonah 3, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. It's exactly the same thing that God said to him when the story opened. With everything that happened between chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, the same word comes to Jonah. And here's what I want you to see in this. What if there is no backup plan with God? What if what he intends to do, he will bring to pass? What if you cannot screw up his intentions for you so badly that he changes his mind about you? I'm going to need you to stick with this for a couple weeks because though we're going to tease some of it out tonight, there's so much more on this particular idea next week in the conclusion of Jonah's story. It seems like the Apostle Paul has something like this in mind in the New Testament when he tells the Philippian church in Philippians 1.6, if you're taking notes or want to reference it, that God is going to bring to completion what he has begun in them. I'll come back to that, but a story to illustrate it. Okay, I worked full-time all through college except for one summer. Okay, after my sophomore year, uh, I went down to about 20 hours a week so I could volunteer uh, for another 20 at Madrona Presbyterian Church in Capitol Hill, uh, or on Capitol Hill in Seattle. You want to throw up the picture of the church, Caleb? That's Madrona Pres. Uh, I had gone on something like, um, I think we called it a city dive. It was like a local mission trip kind of thing for like a day or two, I don't know, Um, with my college ministry, much like we do here at the house when we do local missions. Um, if you have ever been on a local mission Saturday with us or something like this, I was doing something like that with my college ministry. And on one of those service trips, I met a guy named Rob Holland, who was a youth pastor at this church at the time. And he just seemed so lovely. Um, and I wanted to spend time with him. So uh, I, after I came back from that trip, I, I talked to like the mutual connection at our college ministry. It was the associate pastor named Joe, who's good friend of mine now. I was like, Joe, who's that guy named Rob? I want you to connect us, whatever else. And, and, um, and I reached out to him and I said, hey, I would, can I volunteer with you um, so that I could just spend more time with you and get to know you? And I told him I would give him 20 hours a week all summer. I, that's what I would do. I'll just cut down 20 at work and I'll just work part-time so I could volunteer with you 20 hours a week at your church. Um, just learning from you about the faith, helping you with youth ministry. I don't know. I knew, I knew literally nothing about youth ministry I didn't know very much about my faith at all. I mean, I knew some basic categories, but I didn't know what theology, that the word meant. 
I didn't know what a denomination was. I didn't know what the difference between a Presbyterian and a Catholic and a Baptist are. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't, you don't have to know those things. I was a Christian. That's still fine. But I, I just didn't know much, you know. Um, but it turned out all that was great because I don't remember seeing a single kid at this church all summer. <laughs> it was like a, I was like, I'll volunteer to help with youth. And we never had any kids at the church. Uh, but it was a super small church, really old congregation. I think they hired Rob to help bring younger people, but nobody was coming. And so we would just like walk down these neighborhood streets most of the day and we'd knock on doors, see if we could help people out like Mormons do, I guess, something like that, okay? Um, We'd play basketball with kids in the streets, but none of them would come to the church. Most of the time, we just sat right there on those steps. It's got good memories for me looking at that. We sat right there on those steps and just prayed and talked about life. For 20 hours a week, I spent time with this guy, Rob, and he taught me all kinds of things about Jesus. And one day, I was sharing with him how I was nervous about staying a Christian for the rest of my life. Like, I, was, I, I had just finished sophomore year. I was so convicted with, like, this new zeal for, like, Jesus and his kingdom. I was starting to see the fruit of God's work in my life already, how I was less judgmental, how I was learning to become friends with men, I was having new victories over sin. I'd, I'd repented of a bunch of sin and poor relational habits in my romantic life. I was considering making a vow of celibacy for the rest of my life that summer and being single for the rest of my life because I thought this was going to be way easier. I don't think that's true, but that's what I was thinking then. But I kept thinking, like, how do I know? I don't know if you guys think this way, but this is what I was thinking about between the summer of my sophomore and junior year. How do I know that I'm going to believe all this stuff and live like this in five years, let alone the rest of my life. I mean, I'd already changed so much in the previous year or two that it seemed ridiculous for me to think I had any clue of what I was, my life was going to look like in a few more years, you know? So how in the world could I know that I was going to be following Jesus in the years to come, Rob? That was the question I was asking on those steps. And Rob opened the Bible to the book of Philippians, he actually, after that, I remember, this is super old school, he, I think it must, the year must have been like 1999, maybe, maybe it was the year 2000, I don't know, uh, he pulled out like a rolling cart with a tube television and like played a VHS tape of like a church class to teach me what the word sovereignty meant or something, I remember that after this, that's what I did, that's what I did in volunteering, okay, um, anyway, he opened the book uh, to the book of Philippians, Philippians 1.6, and he explained to me the idea of God's sovereignty, then we went in and watched the VHS tape. God's authority, that God could finish and would finish the work that he began in me. That though I must work out my own salvation in fear and trembling, the Spirit of God is at work in me too. And if the Spirit of God is at work in me, Rob said, the Spirit of God will finish what he starts. And so Rob told me, I don't need to be afraid of not following Jesus. I can trust that in 30, 40, 50 years, should I live that long, I would be in Christ because Christ is in me. God finishes what he starts. His yes means yes, friends. And I remember that day feeling so grateful just to rest on the confidence that I could follow Jesus for the rest of my life, not because I knew how to do it, not because my faith was so strong, not because I I knew answers to some hard questions, not because I figured something out, but because of God. 
And I remember telling Rob, well, if that's true, then I can do this. And when I read this story of Jonah, and I see God call Jonah to something particular in Jonah 1, it doesn't surprise me at all that even though Jonah ran from God and tried to bail on everything, that God hasn't given up on Jonah and will finish the work he started in Jonah. When I see Jonah 3.1, I go, that is so like God. It doesn't surprise me to read that when Noah gets off the boat after the great flood, because the whole world has gone wicked, God doesn't come up with a new idea for humanity. He doubles down on his commitment to Adam and Eve. It doesn't surprise me that when God decides to launch the church through Peter, his disciple, and then Peter denies Jesus three times on his greatest day of suffering, that Jesus still finds a way to build his church upon him. What if there isn't a backup plan with God? What if he finishes the work that he starts? God has you here tonight. He has me here tonight. And as his word is open and as we sing praises to him and we pray together and come to the Lord's table together and respond to the gospel being proclaimed in and through his scriptures, we have confidence that when his word falls upon our hearts and upon our minds, it will not return to him empty. He will finish the work he has begun. Jesus says he will lose no one who is given to him. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So when Jonah stands up on the shores of that beach, probably smelling terrible, I don't know what he must have been thinking when he heard those words again that he'd already run from before. I don't know if it surprised him. Like, man, I thought you would give up on me. I don't know. I don't know if it landed upon his conscience like a law of nature. God finishes what he starts. Maybe after a fish swallows him in the ocean for three days and spits him up on land, he's like, I'm not going to run from this God. You know, and that was a terrible experience. Let me go to that. I don't know. But the very same words spoken to Jonah in chapter 1 are the very same words here. God has not given up on his plan. And so Jonah does get up again. And this time he goes to Nineveh, that great city. And he spends like three days there speaking out against it. And here's what he says. This is it. Forty days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's it. That's what Jonah did. Maybe he said more, he's talking for like three days, but every single person that I have read or heard about over the past 2,000 years who has made commentary about this passage notices that this sermon is exceedingly brief. This is only five Hebrew words. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in response to a five-word sermon, the people start to repent and word gets to the king and the king acts like Jesus. He gets down from his throne. He takes off his royal clothing. He puts on humility in sackcloth and he gets down into the ashes with his people. And then he publishes a decree telling everyone in Nineveh, this great city, they need to fast from food and drink and put on sackcloth. And even the livestock, literally cows, are wearing sackcloth. And then everyone should cry out to God and stop doing evil. 
And then the king says, maybe God, maybe the God of Jonah will relent and not destroy us, maybe. Maybe we'll live. Because all these things don't make God do things. Like he's, he, we don't get to like pull levers and push buttons and make God do things. So the king of Nineveh repents and cries out and gets low and tells his people to do the same and they change overnight. This great city known for its wickedness in a matter of three days in response to a five-word sermon repents. And God relents and he lets them live and that's Jonah chapter 3. And I know a lot of us, if we know anything about Jonah, we know about the miracle of a man living in the belly of a fish for three days. If we know anything, that's what we know. But in the book of Jonah, the greatest miracle is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire repenting. And if you're like, that sounds like preachery, because the fish thing is pretty wild. I think it's just because we're not casting our imaginations into this. Because if a news story came out that somebody had been swallowed by a whale and lived in the whale for three days, that would definitely be front page news. That is true. I know so because every few years somebody gets swallowed by a whale and they live in it for like 40 seconds and it's front page news. So if it's three days, that is definitely, that's true like in the last couple of years, there's been news stories about people swallowed by whales, okay? And they come out, they're like, that was crazy. 40 seconds, I thought I was going to die, you know? Um, If it's three days, we are going to lose our minds. I get it. But what if it... What if, what if a Christian living in Palestine right now stood on their roof and shouted in five words or less to Hamas, you are doing evil? And what if in response to that message, every single person involved in Hamas repented and immediately started crying out and praying to God for forgiveness and began loving their enemies. Who would care about a man and a whale? The reason it seems silly is just because we're not imagining it's even possible. This is the irony of this book to me, is that we think, gosh, that's a crazy story. I go, no, no, the crazier story is an entire city repenting and changing their behaviors on five words. At all, let alone five words. I know a whale swallowing a person is sensational, but an entire tribe of people totally changing because of a message from their enemy is miraculous. And Jonah, the story, is laid out as if to say, this miracle of repentance is greater than the miracle of the fish. It reminds me, it's not in my notes, but it reminds me of when these friends... Of, of a man who can't walk lower their friends uh, before the feet of Jesus because he's in this house doing miracles and like teaching and, and, and they, they, they try to get him in because they care so much for their friend and, and they can't so they climb up to the roof and they literally start digging through the roof and make a hole and, and so there's Jesus in this crowded house with like dirt falling on their heads and, and then they lower this man to the ground in front of him and Jesus forgives this, man's, forgives this man of sin and people lose their minds. They're like, who are you to forgive people of sin? And Jesus says, which is harder to do? Tell them to walk or to forgive sin? And that's a crazy story. Because I think at first we're like, man, telling somebody to walk is nuts. But like, who are you to forgive people of their sin? 
Especially, it's not just like, I forgive you for sinning just against me for like a thing you did. Just generally speaking, you're forgiven. Who gets to do that? Jonah's laid out this way. This story invites us to imagine what would happen in this world if the people of God obeyed God. Because get this, the entire city repented in response to a five-word sermon. So what would happen if we opened our mouths and told others about the goodness of God? What would happen if we just attempted to love our enemies? Because in this story, it's a rebellious, like runaway prophet who doesn't even want to do this. And you're going to see next week his attitude and his posture while he's doing it. Because again, lest you think Jonah's a hero, he is most definitely not. He does not want to be there. He does not want to preach this sermon. The only reason he's doing this is because he knows it was really sucky to be on that boat and in the ocean and in a fish, and he's probably better just doing what God says so he can get on with his life. And if God can redeem an entire people group overnight through that, what could he do if we just tried to love people? If we just started telling people about the character and nature of God? The story existing within the history of God's people serves to remind us that God is capable of doing far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because if it's possible that an entire people group could turn on five words from a rebellious Jonah, what could God do in and through us? The series on Jonah is called The Heart of God because in this story, there are so many opportunities for us to see the heart of God. The heart of God for the sailors who are scared for their lives and have no idea who God is. The heart of God for Jonah in the bottom of the ocean. And in our passage today, the heart of God for a wicked city that is coming against God. Even for them, even for a city, a whole people who are doing atrocious things in the world, what God wants is for, them, is, is for their salvation. What He wants is that no one should perish. The most quoted verse in the entire Bible, let me rephrase that, the most quoted verse in the Bible so there's one verse in the Bible that the rest of the Bible keeps quoting over and over and over and over again. And it comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Caleb, did I send you that? Would you put that one up? Great. This is the most quoted verse in the entire Bible for, like for the rest of it once this kind of gets out the gates. It's the very first time in the Bible, if you're going from left to right, that the character of God is talked about in the Bible. Like, who is God really? What is he like? And so just for a minute, I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. It's too late because you already saw the verse, but I want you to close your eyes just for a minute anyway. Okay, you're college students. You know how to suspend disbelief in these kinds of things. Okay, this is great. I want you just to yourself, just even just try to imagine what God might be like. What do you think God is like? Put some words to it in your head. What do you think God is like? Because he tells Moses that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
When God tells this representative of his people what he is like, this is what he says. This character summary is some version of those words is the most quoted verse in the Bible because of how much we need to know and remember who God is and what God is like. Friends, we need to be told God is gracious and compassionate because we are prone to think that he might not be like that. We need to be told that God is slow to anger because we are prone to think he might not be like that. We need to be told that his love is steadfast and he holds it because we are prone to think that he doesn't hold it. We need to be told that he forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin because we wonder if we have been wicked or rebelled or sinned to such a degree that he will not forgive. His compassion and grace are on display with the sailors and with the Jonah and with the Ninevites in this story. Now, God doesn't say he doesn't get angry. That's not what it says. He's slow to anger. He was slow to anger with Jonah. God was surely angry with Nineveh, but his anger is never off the handle. God isn't irritable. His anger is, his anger is love aimed at injustice. The evil in Nineveh was so great. The historical records are heartbreaking about what the, what the Assyrian people did. But still, God just lets that happen while Jonah's running away? Every single step Jonah's taking is another person who has injustice committed against them. Because I, I can tell right now, I mean, I can, I can feel it in myself, that there's a part of us that when we read a verse like this, maybe it's hard for us to believe, but we recognize it would be so good if it were true. But you see, there's another set of questions. Because sometimes, God, I want you to get angry faster. Sometimes I don't want you to forgive. But this is how slow God is to anger. That is, Jonah's going away. The Ninevites are still doing their thing. Days are ticking and evil is happening and still God is slow. And and again, I know there's other questions that come up, but think about this as it pertains to you. If God's character is like this, what does it mean about his own anger towards you? You think you can do things that just make him fly off the handle or get irritable? He's not like that. When has he ever been like that? That's other people in our lives that are like that. And we keep thinking God might be like them. And then finally, when Jonah does go there and starts to preach his message, he's like, in 40 days. Maybe that sounds quick, but that's a long time. When, how long has this Middle Eastern war been going on right now? Just the recent version of it. Not even 40 days. It's a long time. God's love and faithfulness are abounding beyond what is reasonable to everyone in this story. And he forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin in both Jonah and the Ninevites. Here's what I want you to hear, friends. What is true about God then is true about God today. This story reveals the heart of God that his people have been proclaiming for thousands of years. That the God who holds all things together The God who is bringing all creation to a redemptive end. The God who made you and sustains you and loves you is compassionate and gracious. 
He is slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love for you. He forgives, he forgives, he forgives. This is the heart of Jonah. The heart of God for Jonah. It's the heart of God for the Ninevites. It's the heart of God for the sailors. And it's the heart of God for you. Let's pray. God, you who are gracious and compassionate, you who are slow to anger, you who abounds in steadfast love, who holds your steadfast love for thousands, you who forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. On behalf of our brothers and sisters who repented some 2,500 years ago in Nineveh, we give you thanks. And for all who suffered under their rule and their power while they were committing injustice, we look forward to the day when you will set all things right. In our world today, God, we still need your justice to come. We need your grace and mercy more. Help us to believe that you are compassionate and gracious and you don't give up on anyone. 